This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is R.O. Kwan, the nationally best-selling author of The Incendiaries and the co-editor of Kink. R.O., welcome to the show. Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you. I am so happy to be here as well, not least because I have once again almost but not quite burned my apartment down um, for the second time this summer. And um, I learned something today, which is that you have a portable air conditioning unit. You shouldn't plug it into um, a cord extender or like a, a an outlet, whatever you put next to an outlet to make more outlets. Don't plug it into that. In fact, there's even like a big, big tag on the cord itself that says, don't do that. And um, I only read it after <laughs> I made an error and things began to burn. Oh, no, no. Well, you know, I didn't know that you're not supposed to do that with air conditioners. So that's very useful info. And I'm sure plenty of people don't know. So you're saving lots of houses from burning down. <laughs> I appreciate that. Although, like, one of the things that was funny was as soon as I unplugged it, I was like, wow, there's some scorch marks. This the The little sign on the tag is huge. Giant block <laughs> letters. Do not plug this into an extender. Uh, plug it into the wall only. And that's uh, that's 100% on me. So with that caveat, which is like, I don't read prominent instructions uh, when dealing with like major household appliances. That's going to be my perspective today. It's just like, <laughs> sometimes I miss the forest for the trees. What What about you? How are you feeling about the the prospect of advice giving today? Um, I'm, I'm very excited. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about the, about the questions here and I, and I hope that we can um, help some people out. I hope the same. So I'm glad that you have not had any similar brushes with death or loss of life and property. So I'm going to, um, kind of try to like ride on your coattails today. <laughs> yeah. None today. None today. Knock on wood. That's right. Um, I'm just going to start reading labels more. You know, I tend to think like, oh, I bet they're all like the labels you find on mattresses. But like a mattress can't hurt you, but an air conditioner is full of electricity. But you know, who does read those labels? I don't think I've ever read one of those big um, electric labels. Um, the one I run into a lot of trouble with is hair dryers. Um, and I remember reading that. I forget which writer. There's a writer who died because they um, used a hairdryer in a foreign country and somehow something went went awry and that was their cause of death. And I think about that every single time my hairdryer like sparks at me. <laughs> so yeah, I should I should read those too. I mean, just let's read labels. Why not? What what could it hurt? You know, <laughs> worst thing that happens is you waste four seconds of your life. I do I do think though people genuinely do read the labels. I was talking to my friend Maddie this afternoon, who like as a kid had to spend like summers like working for their like families, like HVAC and like AC repair company. Uh, and they were asking me questions about whether or not things were grounded. And um, that was how I learned that there were two types of grounding, one of which is like being on the ground and the others like Maddie was like, are you familiar with electrical grounding? And I was like, is that like how there's the North pole and the magnetic <laughs> North pole? 
Anyways, Maddie's coming over tomorrow. So uh, well, I, um, now I need to go look up what electrical grounding is because I also have no clue. <laughs> I, li- I was like, I don't own a hammer. I don't own a screwdriver. That's not the kind of person I am. Um, let me try to solve a problem that I actually can try to help address because <laughs> we're just getting into the realm of the real and that does me no good. So <laughs> the subject of our first letter is still miss her. I have been out of contact with a close friend for about four years now. We were best friends for about a decade, and it often felt as though we were platonic soulmates. About five years ago, she developed a drinking problem. I told her how concerned I was many times, both when she was drunk and when she was sober, and she always blew me off. Over time, she got worse, and eventually she was falling down drunk every time I saw her. She stopped going to therapy and quit taking her medications because she couldn't mix them with alcohol. It was scary and heartbreaking to watch. One night, things were especially bad, and I thought she was going to the hospital. When I texted her the next day, she said it was normal. I said that I loved her, but that I'd have to take a step back from our friendship because I couldn't watch her do this to herself. I asked her to call me if she was ready to get better and that I'd do anything to help. About a month later, she started spending time with my abusive ex and posting about it online. Before that, she hadn't seen him since he and I split up. She knew what he did to me and had previously cried to me about, quote, not doing enough to get me out of that relationship. This broke my heart because I still love her, but I never confronted her about it. In spite of all this, I still miss her terribly. I doubt she's sober, but I think of her daily and miss the close friendship we had, even though it's been years since we spoke. While I have a strong support network, it isn't the same as what I had with her. Should I leave things as they are? Or is it worth being the one to reach out and invite her back into my life? I mean, as you said, this one is just such a killer. Um, I, I think more than anything, my overwhelming response to this is just, I'm really sorry. Yeah, yeah. This one is just like the levels of heartbreak. I'm really, really sorry. I'm really sorry this has happened and is happening to you. Um, I think the sorrow of losing a friendship, I've been thinking about this a lot over the past years. Um, I feel as though it's really like under-discussed, under-considered. I know that when I've grieved a lost friendship, which hasn't happened all that often, thank God, but each time it has, it's been utterly devastating. And And I'll like listen to like, sad love songs and think about the lost friend and there aren't and there aren't these songs about lost friends there are so many love songs but not about not about the terrible grief of losing a close friend and of having a fraught friendship and i'm just so sorry yeah yeah i think especially the key here is like this person felt like a platonic soulmate like this is a huge fundamental like load-bearing relationship that the letter writer has lost um and so I, I, th- I think the most important part to me is to just say, letter writer, anything um, that you might be considering right now, whether that's potentially reaching out, talking more about it with other people in your life, um, considering going to some Al-Anon meetings, all of those should be on the table. All of those would make sense. I, 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 I think the letter writer is aware that if she were to reach out to her former friend, it would probably not immediately result in, I'm so glad to hear from you. I am sober now. I want to make amends for the ways that I hurt you and I want to reconnect. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 
I, I, I don't want to definitively say at the outset, like, I don't think that's the right idea. I do have some further thoughts on that subject, but I do just want to say it makes sense, letter writer, that you think about it. And I don't want you to feel like you're not allowed to or that it's impossible or that it would necessarily, like, harm the possibility of her maybe ever getting help later. Um, it might, if anything, confirm your decision to not reach out again. Like, I, I can't promise you that it would make you feel better either, but I just don't really think that it would do you much good to think of this in terms of, no, I shouldn't. I should stick to my guns. Like, I think that's also one of the challenging levels of estrangement, especially when it feels like a fraught one, which is just, there's not necessarily a set of rules or a roadmap. And it's okay if, if, if after a few years you're like, gosh, I'd love to, hear from her, even if it's not like a great conversation. Mm-hmm. That's really beautiful. Um, and I I love what you're saying about not feeling as though there's not a reason to be grieving this or, or in any way minimizing your own pain, um, which I don't think you are at all. But um, but just in case that that's happening, because I know that with, again, with with a, with like a, a, a strange friendship, there's something that's so hard. There, there isn't, there aren't like these sort of like breakup structures. There aren't like the grief structures that we already have so little of around other forms of loss. Um, and letting yourself, letting yourself um, think about this and grieve over this and wonder about this and talk about it with people. I think all of that, all of that could be helpful. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, when does it enter into a friendship, right? Like when does it enter into a close friendship expecting it to end um, is another hard thing, I think. And so when it does, it can feel, it, it can feel all the more, all the more crushing. Yeah. I think that, you know, with all of this in mind, there's, there's one thing that I do want the letter writer to sort of consider and definitely talk about with her other friends um, and her current support network before she makes any decision about that, which would be hope for the best, prepare for the worst, given how you left things. And then the fact that she, it, it sounds like sought out your abusive ex on purpose to say fuck you for suggesting that she stopped drinking. And I'm so sorry. That is just like exquisitely painful in a way that like only a deep soul bonded friend can hurt you. Um, and so I would also encourage you as you consider the possibility of reaching out to, to be wary of potential hostility and anger and resentment from her. You, you might not get that, but given what happened last time, I would also want to encourage you to protect yourself. So to think about how will I cut this conversation short if she tries to say something really cruel um, or throw something painful in my face? Um, who could I go spend time with afterwards to sort of grieve with and who would look out for me and, and comfort me? And to not um, to not expect too much from that potential conversation or that even just reaching out to say, I miss you, you know? Um, because it, it does seem to me like there's, I, I don't know, letter writer, if you have talked about this a lot with your other friends, you know, you say there's kind of no one else that you feel the same about. And sometimes that can make it a little more difficult to imagine discussing this with them. But I, I would really encourage you, even if it's just been a while since you talked about that, to to share with one or two or three friends that she's been on your mind a lot lately and that you're kind of torn between how much you miss her and how painful it was that she sought out your abusive ex um, to kind of like indirectly hurt you back for saying you were worried about her drinking. Cause that's, that's pretty big. 
Yeah, there's something about the the specificity of that blow, um, the depth of that cut that I've been trying to think of how a person could hurt someone they love more. And there aren't that many more, there aren't that many more hurtful things that one can do, I think. Um, and so something that comes to mind for me and something that I often try to remind myself of when I'm not sure what to do about a about a fraught relationship is um, letter writer. I wonder what what you would tell a beloved of yours if that person came to you with this situation. How would you think that person should be treated? Um, because I think for me, at least, I often have a lot more clarity around how well I think, how, how, how splendidly I think my friends and loved ones should be treated versus <laughs> what I'm willing to put up with for myself. Um, and I think that, I don't know, I wonder if that's a question that, that could be clarifying. Yeah. I think that's a lovely suggestion. I think too, you know, um, I mentioned briefly the possibility of an Al-Anon meeting earlier. And um, there are also other similar groups that are for supporting people who have a loved one who is or is a former alcoholic. Um, I don't mean to suggest that you have to only go to to that group. There's also uh, moderation management, I think, has an equivalent of Al-Anon. There's a few other like explicitly non-spiritual alternatives that are usually pretty easy to Google. But it's not just for people who have been married to an alcoholic for like 40 years, which I think sometimes people assume. And there might actually be a real sense of relief of going to a a group of people who are committed to like shared anonymity, who you're not going to see at work the next day, who you're not going to have to like go out to dinner with next week, but who have experienced similar like baffling, painful episodes with people that they love. Um, as a result of their drinking. And I think that might potentially be a really good place for you to look for support, solidarity, shared experience. Um, I was so reminded, you know, oftentimes um, people in recovery talk about like, quote unquote, lower companions and this idea that like, it's pretty common for somebody who's like really committed to an active drinking problem to seek out people that they like and esteem less and less in order to facilitate a certain type of drinking that feels increasingly necessary. And none of that is to try to make it feel better or to say like, don't worry, it happens a lot. So you shouldn't be hurt so much as just like, this happens a lot with, with people who are really committed to alcoholism, which is like, I will spend time with the worst people I can find um, in part because weirdly it can help me um, minimize my own shame if I do something that I know will push another person's concern away because the thing I need is to keep drinking like this. That's the thing keeping me alive. Everything else has to come second, even if that means letting go of things that I love. And I don't want to like put too many words in your friend's mouth or assume that that is how she would describe that situation. I, I am inclined to think just from my own experiences in recovery and with other people in recovery, whether she would admit it or not, that's what motivated that decision, which was just, I cannot not drink like this. I have to keep drinking like this. And if that means, you know, getting rid of this beautiful friendship, I'll do it. And I'll do it now like a, you know, a fox would gnaw its leg off if it was caught in a trap. And that's so hard and so painful. And that's part of why people who love alcoholics start support groups. Um, It's devastating and it works. And it probably also, I mean, you you have seen what her drinking looked like a few years ago. It does not seem to be producing uh, a lot of feelings of like happiness, joy, and freedom. 
for her. But I don't say any of that to suggest like, oh, you should really feel bad for her. Oh, that was probably hard for her. Just to try to put it in the context of like, you are not alone in experiencing that kind of like really shocking betrayal after expressing love and concern, which you would hope somebody would at least hear you out. Yeah, Danny, I really love your emphasis on um, on shoring up support in other areas of the letter of the letter writer's life. Um, and I wonder, I know the letter, letter writer. I know you mentioned that um, your other friendships just aren't as close. And I wonder if this is also a time when perhaps um, I wonder if there's more you could do, if there's time you could put in um, with your other friends, if by reaching out to your friends, um, to a friend or two or three, if this is a if you might actually draw closer to these friends. Um, I think sometimes in these moments of great pain, when there is something that is lost, um, and I'm not, I don't want to talk in terms of silver linings. Um, I don't really even believe in silver linings, but when there's a hole that's made, I think that can sometimes be a time when when other things can come in. Again, I'm going to draw on some of my own experiences of, um, of, of having lost really close friendships um, as hard as it was, um, since those around those times, that's also when some of my current closest, most sustaining friendships started being built. Um, and it was partly because I had that extra time, um, this gigantic gap in my life because people I loved were, were missing. And so that, yeah, support groups, friends, um, reaching out to people where maybe you're not as close right now might, might be, might, I wonder if that could be sustaining. Yeah, I, I was thinking that as well, like not in the sense of you'll be able to replace that exact feeling or that exact type of relationship. But one of the things that might happen is you might feel a new kind of closeness with some of these friends that you share this with um, because this is deep and profound and is like weighing at, at your heart um, and is often in your thoughts. And if people know more about those deep places uh, within you, you often feel like you've grown closer as a result um, and not in a way that's about replacing like a pet goldfish, but um, that is about, you know, abiding by like that old cheesy hippie song. If you can't be with the one you love, love the ones you're with, which was not about friendship. I realized it was about cheating on the road, but um, <laughs> we're, we're allowed to remake things and find new meaning. Um, but then, yeah, I think letter writer, it's possible you can reach out to her. I think you're going to get more of the kind of like support and solace that you're looking for from Al-Anon meetings and from your friends. Um, I, my guess is if you were to reach out to her now, like the best case scenario would obviously be she's sober and she's like just about to do uh, the step that involves reaching out to make amends and and you just like happened to to get there a little early. Um, I, I think a more realistic best case scenario would be something like some warmth on her end followed by either, but I'm not sober and I, I'm not interested in being sober and so we can't reconnect or uh, a further lashing out, which I think would also be something that you would have to weigh. And again, like, Many of us have gotten in touch with an ex despite some of our better judgments. Many of us have reached out to an old friend and thought, this probably won't go great, but I really need to do it anyways. That happens. People do that. That's allowed. It's just helpful, I think, to try to have a game plan for afterwards and to expect the possibility that she will be harsh, hostile, resentful, angry, drunk, um, if you were to even just like reach out and say, I love you, I miss you. And that if you're worried about that, maybe the other thing you could do is just like write a letter to the sober version of her that you used to know 
um, that you're not necessarily going to send, but um, to think of that version of her as someone that you can, you know, pour out your heart to. I, it doesn't always do do one good to think of somebody else as like a split personality who's like got a good version and a bad version, but there does seem to have been a pretty substantial change here in her ability to care for you, to show you love, to listen to honesty. So, and again, if you don't send it, it's not like you're going to be hurting her, but maybe just writing a letter directly to that version of her that you used to be close with and sharing your grief with her. Um, it doesn't always make everything feel better, but it can often be a real balm um, to just be tender with the parts of you that suffer the most. Um, you know, uh, every so often, not often, but every once in a while, you know, I talk to a version of my mother who didn't uh, side with the pedophile cabal. And that's pretty tender for me. Um, you know, I think of some version of my mother who I think inculcated me with better values and weirdly, like, gave me the tools to get out despite not wanting to get out herself. Um, I don't send those letters, you know, that Nancy is not a person who currently exists in the world that I can be in a relationship with. But sometimes that's really useful to me um, in times when I feel like there's no one else I want to tell this to besides my mother, but my mother's not an option. So feel free to borrow that one if you like. It doesn't fix everything. Uh, it's still sad. I still fucking hate my mother. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it can be useful. I'm honestly, I'm tearing up, Danny. Um, that's that's so wise, and I think I'm going to fold that into my own life. And I'm so sorry that you've had to learn this in such a very hard way. Um, yeah. And letter writer, um, something that sometimes helps me when I think about relationships that have gotten frayed um, or have just um, ended is to tell myself that um, it's not necessarily that this person doesn't care for me, um, but this person is not able to provide what I need from a relationship. Um, that hurts me a lot less somehow than I think it can be in really just sort of um, utterly bewildering on an, on an existential level maybe to, to know that somebody I loved, um, somebody I cared deeply for, somebody who I know cared deeply for me is not caring for me now. That can be incredibly confusing, I think, to just like the the soft animal parts of ourselves. It doesn't make sense. Um, but if they're not able to provide what they need from a, um, right now from this relationship, then that's, then that's a little different. It, it torques it a little. Um, and if this helps to another thought that, that often helps me is not every relationship is forever. Nothing about our lives is really forever, except I guess the plastic we create. Um, but <laughs> our, we're going to die. Um, everything, like most things end. But what I've had with people, that is real. And nothing can change that. Nothing can change that past. Um, the people I've loved, who I'm estranged from, um, we will always have loved each other back then. And that's something that will never change. Um, and yeah. Yeah. And I think with all of that, the only thing that I would try to sort of say in summary would be letter writer, whether you decide to reach out now or not, whether you decide to continue thinking about the possibility of reaching out in the future, but not taking that step just yet. Um, maybe bringing some more friends into your confidence just so they know it's not just, oh yeah, that happened to you a few years ago, but this is on my mind presently now, often. Um, you know, leave a little light on, you know, in the porch of your heart. 
and just think I cannot control people, places, things, circumstances here. Um, but, you know, I'll leave a porch light on if she ever wants to come around. And if you maybe, you know, it's been four years. If you ever just want to send a quick note that just says, I love you. I miss you. You don't have to respond to this. I want to reiterate if you ever want help, I'm here. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's your porch light. And I think with that, we should move on to our second letter, which is also, you know, uh, fraught in a number of ways, but does have the benefit of asking a really clear, straightforward question. And I do think that we'll be able to to guide this letter writer, at least in the direction of who are the next best people for you to talk to. So the subject is hospice decor. My parents immigrated to America in the 1960s, and my mom especially has always surrounded herself with traditional decorations. This includes the Buddhist swastika, which is sacred to us, but most of the Western world knows from its corruption by the Nazis. We're moving my mom into a palliative care facility soon. We know that she's not going to recover, and we want to make her as comfortable as possible. She treasures her decorations, including some with Buddhist swastika symbols. Would it be totally inappropriate to put them in her hospice room? She'll have a private room, and I know they're important to her, but I don't want to make anyone feel threatened, especially the healthcare workers will have to be there. I'm aware that even though it's the result of misappropriation, that symbol still automatically calls to mind hate and genocide in America. But I also want my mother to feel spiritually grounded and surrounded by familiar sights as she faces the end of her life. Would posting an explanation on her door, for example, be a good idea? I want my mom and her caregivers to both feel safe and respected. So the benefit that I saw to this one was you can talk to your mother's hospice team about this and bring it up with them. Um, Even if they haven't encountered this exact situation before, you know, she's part of a demographic. She's part of a cohort. This is not the first time that like somebody from her background has like aged into hospice care. So that doesn't mean that they're like, oh yeah, we get this one every week. Just like they might have encountered similar issues before. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That was my first thought too. And here too, um, letter writer, I'm just so sorry about what you're going through. This is such a hard time for you and for your mom. Um, And it it must just be extra hard to have any additional difficult considerations to have to keep in mind when you're having, Mm -hmm. when you're going through this. Um, Yeah, Danny, I really agree with you. This, This seems like a discussion to have directly with the healthcare workers, every single one, maybe even who's going to interact with your mom, um, talking to them, talking to the hospice, hospice team, talking to everyone who will be there. Um, and yeah, this they can't this can't possibly be the first time this has come up. Yeah, or maybe it is with them, but they could at least potentially like reach out to peers at other institutions and see what experiences that they have had. Depending on the size of the institution, too, it could be one of those things where, you know, they're like, well, there's only like four or five people who would ever work in your mom's room. So we can have a conversation in-house and let you know what we decide. Or they might say it's a really big place. Maybe a note would be useful. Um, But again, give them a chance to give you some feedback because they might confer amongst themselves. And most people say one thing and one or two other people say, I wouldn't be comfortable. And it'll be easier for them to hash that out amongst themselves before they come back to you. So you don't make anyone give you an answer on the spot. Mm. Um, And also, yeah, they can let you know, like maybe a note would be useful or maybe a note would be uh, disorienting and, and 
we'll tell you based on our um, standards of care, our own experience, um, our various priorities. Um, my guess is you will be able to find some kind of an arrangement whereby you can find like an amount of like private. I mean, part of what the difficulty here is that you're experiencing is your mother's relationship to privacy at the end of her life is now shifting. There was one sort of context whereby you could say, within our home, we get to decide who we invite in and who we don't, who we explain this to, in what way we explain it to them. Um, we don't have to worry about like other contexts from our own cultural background. Like we can experience our culture, our tradition safely and in privacy. And now at the end of her life, she will be living slightly more publicly. And so there's also just that difficult question of how do I afford my mom? dignity, familiarity, safety, autonomy in an environment where she has less privacy than she used to. And and that's a hard question to answer as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Since it's a palliative care facility, this seems a little, um, at least the palliative care facilities I've been in, um, it means that not a lot of people are walking around except the people who work there. And so this may be um this may have a clearer answer than it might in other kinds of facilities. That's a really good point, right? It's not like an active senior center slash retirement home where you've got lots of people who are like in their late 50s, early 60s, like doing activities, popping in and out of each other's room. Like people are mostly in bed, resting, dying. Yeah. 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 And I think to that end too, you should also try to get in touch with the hospice chaplain. They may have one, they may have more than one. Um, but certainly I think try to reach out and say, I would love to be able to be put in touch with somebody who has like specific Buddhist training rather than just like an interfaith chaplain. Do you have anybody that you could make sure comes by my mom's room? Maybe that person could be sort of charged with carrying one or two of those symbols and like bringing them with them uh, to mm -hmm. see your mother on a regular basis um, or or trying to provide other forms of like cultural and religiously contextualized forms of comfort and solace to her on a regular basis. Oh yeah, that's great. And, and along those lines, um, another thought I had was that if, if, if letter ready, you do run into trouble with this, um, if it seems that the facility um, thinks it would be better for these symbols to not be up in your mother's room. Um, I wonder if it would be if it would provide any solace for your mother and for you if you brought if you brought the icons in yourself um, might be an option. Yep, I, I think that that is is the the other really important thing is to ask: Would that be okay? Because again, it would also really make sense if they said, you know our employees are not comfortable with that or we have policies um, rendering that impossible. Um, yeah. uh, even if we wanted to help in this one context, we would not be able to. So asking to work with them on other possible workarounds and then also any other possible like comforting or familiar signs that don't involve that particular image, make sure to you know get as many in there as you can. Um, and good luck. Uh, hopefully, I mean, again, I think usually you can count on at least like maybe they're overworked, but like they're definitely wanting to provide care and, and peace and solace um, to anyone in a hospice. Like I, I hope you can count on their willingness to work with you, even if there's not necessarily a yes uh, in the offing. And I'm so sorry that your mom is dying. I hope that you're able to spend a lot of time with her and that she is as comfortable um, and peaceful as possible in the meanwhile. 
Well, let's take a little breath and uh, start to move upwards from the valley floor so that we can talk about slightly uh, lighter topics. I realize now the sort of pleasant light irony of um, having the author of The Incendiaries on and immediately talking about how I almost set my apartment on fire. Um, (laughs) What's the last time you almost set something on fire? Is that something that happens to you often? Is that a me thing? Oh, no, it definitely happens. Let's see. Um, I'm not much of a cook. um, And the problem is that my attention skips um, and I just forget things. And so in general, when I turn a stove on, um, things things can get... Things I've burned on stoves include entire espresso maker handles, um, (laughs) stoves, uh, let's see, pots for sure, um food all the time. Like it's just, it's just like a, it's like a scary situation. And I, and I try, I actually try kind of hard not to use a stove and to, and to use and to do anything else. Um, mm-hmm. I have a, I, I try not to light fires basically. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I feel like at this point, if I turn the stove on and then leave the kitchen, it's 50, oh, yeah. 50, whether I'll remember. I mean, you could just end up thinking about something else. How are you supposed to remember these things? I don't know how people remember these things. It's very generous of you to say you could end up thinking of something else. When I walk from one room into another room, it's like severance. Uh, it is like that part of my brain just can't walk past the thresholds. And I'm just like a brand new guppy swimming around in a brand new bowl. Like, oh, this is a nice room. I wonder what's going on in here. <laughs> Exactly. And with two plus and two plus years into a pandemic, like all our memories have been fraying, like all our ability to hold it on. You'd think because I have spent so much time in my apartment the last two and some odd years, I would be like really on top of it at least because I'd be like, oh, I know this apartment like the back of my hand. No, not the case. The case is that I know the back of my hand less well than I used to (laughs) and also my apartment. You know, I've drawn a lot of solace from, um, I, I love reading books for lay people about physics, about like wild physics. Um, I've read several books on sort of like the nature of time. Um, and, you know, like physicists keep saying that time isn't real, that our conception of time isn't real, that none of it's real. And that like all of it, like time loops, time does, time does all kinds of things. And I think that I did not know a- that they were saying this. I did yes. not know that there was a consensus <laughs> that time isn't real. Time is at least that's that's like what what current physics says um, is that is that time isn't real and then it loops around. Um, oh, this is one wild fact. So if two twins are born and if one lives in the mountains and one lives at sea level, um, the twin at sea level years later will have aged noticeably, like measurably, a little bit slower, more slowly than what? the than the twin at the at on the mountaintop. And it's that um, the closer you are to the earth, the closer you are to a large gravitational sort of like object, um, you you age less slowly. I told my mother this and she was just like, so I guess we should just like crawl on the floor then. Like, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> this feels like such a, like it's like such a deeply mythological tale. Like there were two twins. One was raised <laughs> at the level of the sea and one with the mountains. And lo, one of them did not age. Um, yeah. <laughs> Should we be living closer to sea level? Is is that the like idea? I think I think on our Earth it's a very small difference. Um, I think like out in space it makes a it makes a much bigger difference. Um, but yeah, I, I find that comforting when I, for instance, burn my ridiculous eggs for the nine hundredth time. Um, I'm just like, you know what? Time isn't real. Time skipped. It's not. <laughs> it's not just that I failed once again. It might just be time. Who knows? 
that is um, really, really something else. I, I am aware at, at one point or another in the last two years, I wrote down the name of this book. Something to do with this idea that like, uh, particularly in the UK at the beginning of the 19th century time was not something that was like understood as standardized and you could travel from one town to another and they might wind their clocks differently or have a different relationship to time. And by the end of the century with like the nationalization of railways, the standardization of time was, was a much bigger going concern and that kind of idea of this century closing out with this really different relationship of time is really fascinating, but I don't have to worry about that because uh, now time isn't real. So um, <laughs> I can just enjoy being in the 21st century where it's exploded and re-atomatized. <laughs> Atomized? That's right. Atomatized is not a word, but it does sound good. It sounded, it sounded, I was like, it's, it totally sounded good. <laughs> so is all of the reading about time for, like, are you working on another anthology about time now? Is this for anything or is this just for pleasure? No, it's just for pleasure. Um, I think because somehow when um, when world when the world's news is especially um, disheartening as it as it as it as it has been and continues to be, um, I find it calming. It, it calms my anxiety a little bit to read about um, to read about wild physics, to read about weird space, to read about uh, microbes, um, and just to remember that there are so many other like kinds of living and ways of being and that really the earth is like this tiny little blip in the in the history of um in the history of of whatever and um and all of that I just find intensely calming so it's it's like a it's just like a self-soothing thing I think that sounds really really lovely my thing lately has been listening to old short stories uh adapted for like 1940s radio that have been uploaded to YouTube um because my like reading attention span has has really, you know, a, a number has been done upon it over the last two years, but I'm great at listening. So like I'd never read um, Asimov's Nightfall, but it's on YouTube complete with like guys in the background going like, oh no, the sun and like, you know, slamming some <laughs> foil against a rock or something. So I got to, you know, experience the story, if not read it exactly. And I, I was like, oh, this is great. Now I've finally been able to check that off my list. So um Old old forties radio serials uh, on on YouTube. That's my recommendation. Ooh, I've never. I think I've never heard one of these. I'm excited. I'm They're go a lot of fun. It. I will send you so many links unless you oh stop me. Oh my gosh, me. would love that. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I have. If you are around for just another minute, a quick question that I wanted to tackle. Um, which I haven't sent to you in advance. So, uh, and it's also, I feel like I sometimes like try to save up. I get some specific questions that are about like transmasculine transition and I'm like, okay, okay, no, no, no. I can, I can do this one in 45 seconds. Just stick around. Like, don't worry. You don't have to get too into the weeds, but I think this is useful. I hear variations of this occasionally. So this one is just called transmasking, but with a K instead of a C. Very clever. I like it. I see what you did there. I'm a late-in-life autistic transmasculine person, they slash he, in the process of transitioning and also unmasking. I see a lot of talk in transmasculine circles about how, quote, once you hit a certain point of perceived masculinity, you should start altering your behavior so that presumably cis women will know that you are, quote, safe. For example, crossing the road when you're walking behind a woman at night, pitching your voice up to show that you are non-threatening, etc., this has always rubbed me the wrong way, but now that I am sometimes perceived to be a cis man, is crossing the road at night the right thing to do? I live in a major city and I walk everywhere, so I run into this issue every day. 
Both unmasking and transitioning have helped me to stop doing the things that I do just for cis people's comfort, which has drastically improved my life. But is this particular one just an exception? I'm so glad you asked me. Um, I have some thoughts here. Letter writer, you sound lovely, and I'm so happy that transitioning and unmasking has been useful to you. Uh, I think it is always good to try to strike a balance between not living solely to provide other people with comfort, but also, you know, remembering the the classic line about we live in a society and it is nice to look out for other people. Um, yeah, it, it sounds to me like you have a fairly uh, practical sense of like what's polite and what's weird. Like if you're going to transition to become a man, you must take the burden of years of sexism onto your shoulders and atone, atone young man, atone, uh, which is silly. And you are right to, to be skeptical. Um, I, I, you know, again, this also depends on altering behavior. I feel like I've also lived in cities for a lot of my life. I feel like well before transition back in the days when I was like trying to like buy the, the Joan from Mad Men mannequin off of the Banana Republic rack, because that's what I was like, I'll wear that. She wears that sheath dress nicely. Like, so way before anyone perceived me as anything, um, I would, I don't know, like generally if I was like walking very closely behind someone at night, I would like try to drift back or like move a little bit to the side just so it was clear I wasn't like dogging their steps, but not in a way that felt overly stage managed or like I was really, really having to work mentally to do it. Just like a general, like, I don't know, leave a few feet of space between us. And if we're the only two people on a really dark and crowded street and they seem a little jumpy, you know, I'll shift a little to the right so that like they can see I'm not trying to like follow their steps. Is that something that you have also done as a non-transmasculine person? He assumed. <laughs> um. Yeah, I was I was thinking about that about how sometimes um if I'm walking near someone and I sort of start feeling as though I'm actually a little too close to that someone, yeah, I might just slow down my pace a little. I might like swerve a little so that I did just like just being conscious of other people's comfort is is always nice, but I think everything you're saying is totally makes sense. Um and and letter writer, you sound as Danny said, you sound like already like a very thoughtful person who I I imagine that like your your instincts are good and like trust your instincts. Like trust, trust like what your trust what your body's telling you. Yeah. And I think that there's a reason why like the moments of like some skepticism was coming through in this letter, those struck me as the right moments. Like that presumably cis line about like, hang on, is this why are we imagining a world wherein I, the trans person, am only ever imagined as a potential like figure of fear rather than someone who might themselves be unsafe? And, you know, uh in my long life of various types of street harassment, I'll say hands down the worst combination is a straight man and a straight woman. Uh, because she's living vicariously through him and he's doing it for her and they are not going to stop till the cows come fucking home. Um, so, you know, yeah, uh, letter writer, you might also find that there are times when you yourself uh, feel unsafe out on the street at night and you need to consider your own safety and comfort. Um, the thing about pitching your voice up to show you're non-threatening, garbage nonsense? What in the world? First of all, I've never had trouble pitching up my voice. Like, I'm getting mammed on the phone to this day. And I started transitioning back in like 2017. So congratulations if your voice is just like that robust. But like, I don't know, like Woody Allen has a pretty high-pitched voice and I, I don't think many people would describe him as safe. Um, 
except for like horrible friends of his who write columns <laughs> about what a great guy he is. So uh, yeah, to me, I think you're right to be skeptical of that. I think that sounds like nonsense. Uh, the idea that the only people who are safe, you know, have high pitched voices. It's just demonstrably, it's demonstrably nonsense. Um, uh, you know, if you want to cross the road, sometimes you absolutely can. But if you are walking home and somebody is half a block ahead of you and you don't like pull out a bell and start yelling like, I'm Quasimodo, <laughs> I'm disgusting, throw garbage at me, I'm sorry for walking. Like, you don't have to do that. Um, you don't live in Thunderdome. I, th- I think that's kind of it. Yeah, it's nice to live in a society. It's nice to be aware of other people's uh, comfort and and needs. But I think you are right to be sort of like aware that like sometimes you might be in public and a cis woman or presumably cis woman uh, acts a little weird around you. And it's because she's transphobic, not because you are the shape of the like or mugger slash bad dad uh, haunting her safety. So, um, yeah, those are my thoughts on that subject. Sometimes people do talk about walking around in ways that are a little surprising. But congratulations, you sound great. Congratulations. If you you like the idea of walking around carrying a giant bell, you certainly can, but you should only do it for stylish reasons. (laughs) Did you, by the way, speaking of musical instruments, successfully end your piano playing career with the uh, burning incident? Um, I think that was a decisive moment. I don't think it ended the piano lessons immediately, but not too long after that, the piano lessons did. (laughs) I am glad that it did not take any further acts of uh, burning. But um, (laughs) if you ever need to burn something down in the future, might I recommend plugging a portable AC unit into an adapter? (laughs) We'll keep that in mind. Thank you very much. (laughs) Aro, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was such a delight. You are such a genius. And um, time certainly didn't feel real today while we were talking. Oh, Danny, thank you so much for having me. I admire you and your work so much. And it's been such a joy to talk with you. Right back at you. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Don't give him any parting details that are going to rattle around in his head for a while. But at your next check-in, say, this is hard for me to say because I really care about you. But I don't want to get back together. I know you want to have sex again. I don't want to have sex and I don't want to be in a relationship anymore. And I'm sorry if that's painful, but that's what I want and I need to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, Danny, I think you're I think you're you're spot on. Um I'm, I'm Oh you don't not to... you didn't want to give a shout out for fake and uh unreasonable ailment? Because I would do that. <laughs> I in sixth grade pretended to have sprained my ankle standing in front of a uh kindergarten music class because they sent me down there during my band practice to make me teach them how to play snare drum. And I hadn't practiced the song and I was so nervous. So I just stood there and I said, Ow, my ankle. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.